You're listening to The Book Nook. Today, we travel to Africa, to the farm of Baroness Karen von Blixen. I had a farm in Africa, at the foot of the Nyong Hills. The equator runs across these highlands a hundred miles to the north, and the farm lay at an altitude of over 6,000 feet. In the daytime, you felt that you had got high up near to the sun, but the early mornings and evenings were limpid and restful, and the nights were cold. The geographical position and the height of the land combined to create a landscape that had not its like in all the world. There was no fat on it, no luxuriance anywhere. It was Africa, distilled up through 6,000 feet like the strong and refined essence of a continent. The colors were dry and burnt like the colors in pottery. The trees had a light, delicate foliage, and the structure of which was different from that of the trees in Europe. It did not grow in boughs or cupolas, but in horizontal layers, and the formation gave to the tall, solitary trees a likeness to palms, or a heroic, romantic air like full-rigged ships with their sails furled, and to the edge of a wood-rigged, strange appearance as if the whole wood were faintly vibrating. Upon the grass of the great plains, the crooked bare old thorn trees were scattered, and the grass was spice-like thyme and bog myrtles. And in some places, the scent was so strong that it smarted in the nostrils. All the flowers that you found on the plains or upon the creepers and liana in the native forests were diminutive, like flowers of the downs. Only just in the beginning of the long rains, a number of big, massive, heavy-scented lilies sprang out on the plains. Their views were immensely wide. Everything you saw made for greatness and freedom and unequaled nobility. The chief feature of the landscape and your life in it was the air. Looking back on a sojourn in the African highlands, you are struck by your feeling of having lived for a time up in the air. The sky was really more than pale blue or violet, with a profusion of mighty, weightless, ever-changing clouds. They were towering up and sailing on it, but it has a blue vigor in it, and a short distance it painted the range of hills and the woods of a fresh deep blue. In the middle of the day, the air was alive over the land like a flame burning. It scintillated, waved, and shone like running water, mirrored and doubled all objects, and created great Fata Morgana. Up in this high air, you breathed easily, drawing in a vital assurance and lightness of heart. In the highlands, you woke up in the morning and thought, Here I am where I ought to be.
The mountain of Nyon stretches in a long ridge from north to south and is crowned with four noble peaks like immovable darker blue waves against the sky. It rises 8,000 feet above the sea and to the east 2,000 feet above the surrounding country. But to the west the drop is deeper and more precipitous. The hills fall vertically down towards the great ripped valley. The winds in the highlands blow steadily from the north to the northeast, and it is the same wind that down at the west coasts of Africa and Arabia, they named the monsoon the east wind, which was King Solomon's favorite horse. Up here it is felt as just the resistance of the air as the earth throws herself forward into space. The wind runs straight against the Nyong Hills, and the slopes of the hills would be the ideal place for setting up a glider. That glider would be lifted against the Nyon Hills, and the clouds which were traveling with the wind struck the side of the hill and hung around it, or were caught on the summit and broken to rain. But those that took a higher course and sailed clear of the reef dissolved to the west of it over the burning desert of Rift Valley. Many times I have from my house followed these mighty processions advancing and have wondered to see their profound floating masses as soon as they had gotten over those hills, vanishing into the blue air and be gone. The hills from the farm change their character many times in the course of the day, and sometimes they looked quite close, and at other times very far away. And in the evening, when it was getting dark, it would look first as you gazed at them as if the sky, a thin silver line, was drawn all along the silhouette of the dark mountain. And then as night fell, the four peaks seemed to be flattened and smoothed out, as if the mountain was stretching and spreading itself. From there, the Nyong Hills, you have a unique view. You see to the south, the vast plains of the great game country that stretches all the way to Kilimanjaro, and to the east and north, the park-like country of the foothills, with the forests behind them, and the undulating land of the Kihu Reserve, which meets to Mount Kenya a hundred miles away, a mosaic of little square maize fields, banana groves, and grassland, with here and there the blue smoke from a native village, and a small cluster of peaked molochloss. But towards the west, deep down, lies the dry, moon-like landscape of the African Low Country. The brown desert is irregularly dotted with little marks of the thorn bushes, and the winding riverbeds are drawn up with crooked, dark green trails. Those are the woods of the mighty, wide-branching mimosa trees with thorn-like spikes, and the cactus grows here. And here is the home of the giraffe and the rhino. The hill country itself, when you get into it, is tremendously big, picturesque, and mysterious. It's varied with long valleys, thickets, 
green slopes and rocky crags. High up under one of those peaks, there is even a bamboo grove. There are springs and wells in the hills. I have camped up here by them. And in my day, the buffalo, the elan, and the rhino lived in the Nyong Hills. The very old natives remembered a time when there were elephants there, and I was actually sorry that the whole Nyong Mountain was not enclosed in the game reserve. Only a small part of it was the game reserve, and the beacon on the southern peak marked the boundary of it. And when the colony prospers in Nairobi, the capital grows into a big city, the Nyong Hills might have a matchless game park for it. But during my last years in Africa, many young Nairobi Shaw people went onto the hills on Sundays on their motorcycles and shot at anything they saw. And I believe that the big game will have wandered away from the hills through the thorn thickets and the stony ground further south. And up upon that very ridge of hills and on the four peaks themselves, it was easy to walk because the grass was short on the lawn with the gray stone in places breaking through the sward. All along the ridge, up and down the peaks like a gentle switchback, there ran a narrow game path. And one morning, at the time I was camped in those very hills, I came up here and walked along that path, and I found its fresh tracks and the dung of a herd of eland. Those big peaceful animals may have been up on the ridge at sunrise walking in a long row, and you cannot imagine that they had come for any other reason just to look. All they wanted to do was look deep down on both sides at the land below.
We grew coffee on my farm. The land was in itself a little too high for coffee, and it was hard work to keep it going. We were never rich on the farm. But a coffee plantation is a thing that gets hold of you and does not let you go, and there was always something to do on it. You are generally just a little behind with your work. In the wildness and irregularity of the country, a piece of land laid out and planted according to rule looked very well. Later on, when I flew in Africa and became familiar with the appearance of my farm from the air, I was filled with admiration for my coffee plantation that lay quite bright green in the gray-green land, and I realized how keenly the human mind yearns for geometrical figures. All the country round Nairobi yearns for geometrical figures, particularly to the north of the town, and is laid out in a similar way. And here live a people who are constantly thinking and talking of planting, pruning, or picking coffee, and who lie at night and meditate upon improvements to their coffee factories. Coffee growing is a long job. It does not at all come out as you imagine when, yourself young and hopeful, in the streaming rain, you carry the boxes of your shining young coffee plants from the nurseries and, with the whole number of farmhands in the field, watch the plants set in the regular rows of holes in the wet ground where they are to grow and then have them thickly shaded against the sun with branches broken from the bush since obscurity is the privilege of young things. It is four or five years till the trees come into bearing, and in the meantime, you will get drought on the land or diseases, and the bold native weaves will grow up thick in the fields, the blackjack, which has long scabrous seed vessels that hang onto your clothes and stockings. Some of the trees have been badly planted with their taproots bent. They will just die as they begin to flower. You plant a little over 600 trees to their acre, and I had 600 acres of land with coffee. My oxen dragged the cultivators up and down the fields between the rows of trees many thousand miles patiently awaiting countless bounties. There are times of great beauty on a coffee farm. When the plantation flowered in the beginning of the rains, it was a radiant sight like a cloud of chalk in the midst in the drizzling rain over 600 acres of land. The coffee blossom has a delicate, slightly bitter scent like the blackthorn blossom. When the fields redden with their ripe berries, all the women and children whom they call the Totos were called out to pick the coffee off the trees together with the men, and then the wagons and carts brought it down to the factory near the river. Our machinery was never quite what it should have been, but we had planned and built the factory ourselves and thought highly of it. Once, the whole factory burned down and had to be built up again. The big coffee dryer turned and turned, rumbling the coffee in its iron belly with a sound like pebbles that are washed about on the seashore. Sometimes the coffee would be dry and ready to take out of the dryer in the middle of the night. That was a picturesque moment 
with many hurricane lamps in the huge dark room of the factory that was hung everywhere with cobwebs and coffee husks and with eager glowing dark faces in the light of the lamps round the dryer. The factory. You felt it hung in the great African night like a bright jewel in the Ethiop's ear. Later on, the coffee was hulled, grated and sorted by hand and packed in sacks, sewn up with a saddler's needle. And then, in the end, in the early morning, while it was still dark and while I was lying in bed, I could hear the wagons loaded up high with the coffee sacks, 12 to a ton with 16 oxen to each wagon. Starting on their way to Nairobi Railway Station up the long factory hill, with much shouting and rattling, the neighbors and the drivers running beside the wagons. I was pleased to think that this was the only hill up on their way, for the farm was a thousand feet higher than the town of Nairobi. And in the evening, I walked out to meet the procession that came back, the tired oxen hanging their heads in front of the empty wagons with the tired little Toto leading them, and the weary drivers trailing their whips. The coffee would be on the sea in a day or two, and we could only hope for good luck at the big auction sales in London. I had 6,000 acres of land, and thus... Much got the spare land because of the coffee plantation. Part of my farm was native forest and about 1,000 acres were squatters land, what they called shambas. The squatters are natives who with their families hold a few acres on a white man's farm and in return have to work for him a certain amount of days in the year. My squatters, I think, saw the relationship in a different light for many of them were born on the farm and their fathers before them and they very likely regarded me as sort of a superior squatter on their estates. The squatter's land was more intensely alive than the rest of the farm and was changing with the seasons the year round. The maize grew up higher than your head as you walked along the narrow, hard, trampled footpaths in between the tall, green, rustling regiments, and then again it was harvested. The beans, oh, the beans, they ripened in the fields and were gathered and thrashed by the women, and the stalks and the pods were collected and burned so that, in certain seasons, thin columns of smoke rose here and there all over the farm. The kikuyu. Also, they grew sweet potatoes that have a vine-like leaf and spread over the ground like a dense, entangled mat, and many varieties of the big and yellow and green speckled pumpkins. Whenever you walk amidst the kikuyu shambas, the first thing you will catch your eye is the hind part of a little old woman raking in her soil like a picture of an ostrich which buries her head in the sand. And each kikuyu family had a number of small round-peaked huts and store huts, and the space between the huts was a, a lively place, the earth hard as concrete, and here the maize was ground and the goats milked and the children and chickens were running. I used to shoot spurfowl in the sweet potato fields around the squatter's house in the blue late afternoons, and the stock pigeons cooed at a loud song in the high-stemmed fringy trees which were left over here and there in the shambas from the forest that had once covered all of the farm. I had moreover a couple of thousand of acres of grassland on the farm, and here the long grass ran and fled like sea waves before the strong wind, and the little Kikuyu herd boys herded their father's cows. And in the cold season, 
in the cold season, they carried live coals and small wicker baskets with them from the huts and sometimes caused big grass fires, which were disastrous to the grazing on the farm. But in the years of drought, the zebra and the ellen came down to the farm's grass plains. You're listening to The Book Nook, and today's feature is a spotlight on author Karen Blixen, who wrote under the pen name of Isaac Dinesen, and this is her book, Out of Africa. Nairobi was our town, 12 miles away, down on a flat bit of land amongst hills. Here was the government house and the big central offices. From here, the country was ruled. It is possible that a town will not play a part in your life. Not one bit. It does not even make much of a difference whether you have more good or bad things to say of it. It draws your mind to it by a mental law of gravitation. The luminous haze on the sky above the town at night, which I could see from some places on my farm, set my thoughts going and recalled the big cities of Europe. When I first came to Africa, there were no cars in the country, and we rode to Nairobi or drove in a cart with six mules to it and stabled our animals in the stables of Highland Transport. During all my time, Nairobi was a medley place with some fine new stone buildings and whole quarters of old corrugated iron shops, offices, and bungalows laid out with long rows of eucalyptus trees along the bare, dusty streets. The offices of the High Court, the Native Affairs Department, and the veterinary department were lousily housed, and I had a great respect for those government officials who could get any work at all done in the little burning lot inky rooms in which they were set. All the same, Nairobi was a town, and here you could buy things, hear news, lunch, or dine at the hotels and dance at the club. And it was a lively place, in movement like running water, and in growth like a young thing. It changed from year to year, and while you were away on a shooting safari, things had a way of changing on their own. The new government house was built, a stately cool house with a fine ballroom and a pretty garden. Big hotels grew up. Great impressive agricultural shows and fine flower shows were held. Our quasi-smart set of the colony from time to time enlivened the town with rows of quick melodrama. Nairobi said to you, Make the most of me and of time. so young, so undisciplined and rapacious, Zusaman. Generally, I and Nairobi were in very good understanding. And at one time, I drove through the town and thought, there is no world without Nairobi streets. 
The quarters of the natives and the colored immigrants were very extensive compared to the European town. The Swahili town on the road to Muthaiga Club had not a good name in any way, but it was a lively, dirty, and gaudy place with at any hour a number of things going on in it. It was built mostly of the old paraffin tins hammered flat in various states of rust like the coral rock, the fossilized structure from which the spirit of advancing civilization was steadily fleeing. The Somali town was further away from Nairobi on account, I think, of the Somali system of seclusion of their women. There were in my day a few beautiful young Somali women of whom all the town knew the names who went and lived in the bazaar and led the Nairobi police a great dance. They were intelligent and bewitching people. But the honest Somali women were not seen in the town. The Somali town lay exposed to all winds and was shadeless and dusty. It must have recalled to the Somali their native deserts. Europeans who live for a long time, even for several generations in the same place, cannot reconcile themselves to the complete indifference to the surroundings of their homes of the nomadic races. The Somalis' homes were irregularly strewn on the bare ground and looked as if they had been nailed together with a bushel of four-inch nails to last for a week. It was a surprising thing when you entered one of them to find it so neat and fresh, scented with Arab incenses, with fine carpets and hangings, vessels of brass and silver and swords with ivory hilts and noble blades. The Somali women themselves had dignified, gentle ways and were hospitable and gay with a laughter like silver bells. I was much at home in the Somali village through my Somali servant, Farah Aden, who was with me all the time that I was in Africa, and I went to many of their feasts. A big Somali wedding is a magnificent traditional festivity, and as their guest of honor, I was taken into the bridal chamber where the walls and the bridal bed were hung with old, gently glowing weavings and embroideries, and the dark-eyed young bride herself was stiff like a marshal's baton with heavy silks, gold, and amber. The Somali were cattle dealers and traders all over the country. For the transport of their goods, they kept a number of little gray donkeys in the village, and I have seen camels there as well, haughty, hardened products of the desert beyond all earthly sufferings like cactus and the Somali themselves. The Somali bring much trouble upon themselves by their terrible tribal quarrels. In this matter, they feel and reason differently from other people. Farah belonged to the tribe of Habir Unis, so that personally in a quarrel I sided with them. At what time there was a great real fight in the Somali town between the two tribes of Dubai Hantis and Abar Shalo, with rifle shooting and fires, and 10 or 12 people killed until the government interfered. Farah then himself had a young friend of his own tribe by the name of Saeed who used to come out to see him at the farm and who was a graceful boy 
so that I was sorry when I was told by my houseboys that Saeed had gone round to visit a Habishal family in their house when an angry member of the Dublahantis tribe had passed and fired two shots haphazardly through the wall of the house and broken Saeed's leg. I condoled with Fra on his friend's misfortune. What, Saeed? Fra cried out in vehemence. That was good enough for Saeed. Why must he go and drink tea in the house of a hybrid shawl? The Indians of Nairobi dominated the big native business quarter of the bazaar, and the great Indian merchants had their little villas just outside the town. They all had a taste for stonework, stairs, balusters, and vases rather badly cut out of the soft stone of the county, like the structures which children built of pink ornamental bricks. They gave tea parties in their gardens with Indian pastry in the style of the villas, and they were cleverly traveled and highly polite people. But in Africa, such are grasping tradesmen that with them you would never know if you were to face to face with a human individual or with the head of a firm. I had been to Salome Vergi's home and one day I saw the flag at half-mast above his compound of the warehouse and I asked Farrar, is Solomon Vergi dead? Half dead, said Farrar. Do they put the flag at half-mast when he is half dead? I asked. Solomon is dead, said Farrar. Vergi is alive. You've been listening to Out of Africa. The letters from Karen Blixen on her journey. Join us again on the Book Nook. Here on Island Waves. The voice of Prince Edward Island.